in, in what podcaster's voice are we going to be doing this podcast in? <laughs> um, I'll be doing Dave Rubin today. <laughs> That's quite good. Today's uh, video is on the YouTube. <laughs> I could do Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> do you like mangoes? I like what about a thousand mangoes? I like mangoes. Big sloppy mangoes. That you eat by yourself with a shirt off. <laughs> With, oh, a, with, so a, with a sexy woman by your side. You, you can't, <laughs> that's not something you no. want. <laughs> On a tropical island. But that's my kind of holiday. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> what are you talking about? Your holiday is reading books at home alone. <laughs> Let's do this thing, shall right, we? Right. Let's see how we Welcome to Jeremy's Iron. It's an evidence-based podcast about science, research, and our, our favorite podcasters. Right? That's right. With me, Justin Gladwell. (laughs) And me, Justin Carlin. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad we have someone who can join us in our anagram game. We take proper names and rearrange the letters to form a description of that person. Like, uh, Alec Guinness. All right, so this is Jeremy's Iron, and you'll have noticed that we've called this episode Jeremy's Iron, colon, creationists. We're actually going to be looking in the main part of the show about- Is uh, that creationist with a question mark? No, exclamation mark. Mm. Yeah, I'm suggesting that we are creationists now. We're going to look at some oh. well, quote-unquote evidence, or lack of evidence, I should say, for Darwin's theory of evolution towards the end of the show. We saw a very interesting video, and we're going to try to uh, put it through- the lens of our scientific rigor to see if it holds any water at all. Mm, what do you think, Darwin? Yay or nay? Well, I'm, of course, I'm going to say yay straight up. I'm a yay man. Mm. I got Darwin's face tattooed on my butt. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can't believe you did that. You don't want to know how far the beard goes down. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you incorporate his beard into your butt hair. It <laughs> <That> was clever. <laughs> Very good. Uh, that's coming up towards uh, the second half of the show. We're going to have a little chit-chat first, though. And if you, if you like what you hear, you can find us on the web, jeremysiron.com. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, Facebook, Jeremy's Iron Podcast. Do a little search, you'll find us. And uh, if you want to leave, drop us a line. We don't have a PO box yet, or we don't have a phone line, as we were discussing last <laughs> no, week. No, we don't. We do have a weekly mailer. Ooh, that's not bad as well. Pretty good. What other media can we kind of diversify into? We've got a town crier. <laughs> town crier. Have we discussed print media? Like a, like, <laughs> like a, like a rag? Like a street, street press? Yeah. We, what? We're going to have a Jeremy Zion street press. Yeah. So we did say we need to transcribe each of these episodes and put them into some sort of a... Of a Tab. Uh, <laughs> what's the tab version of podcasts yeah. has someone worked out the tabs for last week's episode <laughs> oh dude I've been, I've been, I've been, I'm struggling on the tabs uh, I think we might leave it there that's really good what we tend to do on this show is have a little chit chat at the beginning mm-hmm. and then uh, we're going to do a, a news just in segment where I'm going to throw a whole bunch of uh, well I, tell you, I think I've only got two pieces of news to throw at you 
where I'm going to get you to respond with all of your wealth of scientific knowledge. And you know what? That's not your fault. If it was a slow science news week, yeah. who's to blame you? Yeah. You, you did your research. I did. That's all the world did. Exactly right. And this um, is the problem with science now. And this one, this one's actually not going to be Russia related as it was last week, given that we were in... Well, we're not in Russia. Russia. Why would we talk about Russia anymore? So what do you reckon? Do you want, do you want to do that? Should we I get do. into it? Let's do it. Let's do news just in. Mm-hmm. Now, I still really want to develop a sting for this so we can have a bit of a, a musical introduction to it. One day, I'm going to have a snazzy... Are you talking to me or are you okay. talking to them? I'm t- <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm almost talking to myself in this case. This is going to be I'm, like a constant no, no, I'm putting this now. On, I'm putting this on record so yeah. that people hear it yeah. and they can be at me when they're like, we still haven't got the theme for News Just In. So. News Just In. Here's the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's an interesting one. Uh, early birth is a key factor in educational disadvantage of twins. A data linkage study mm-hmm. by okay. Zeltzer et al. Oh, look this at my that. paper, baby. My look, paper got published. Look at that. Right on. Yeah. I thought I might, you know, this is a bit of, if there's a forum free, for it. Free press. Free press. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did a study last year on so this the- this is a podcast about science, uh, research- This is science. science. And, a, and, and biased evidence <laughs> reporting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was working for a- um, It's just, what are the- Pediatric um, research center yeah. at Sydney University. We were doing a bit of study into twins, looking at the health of twins. Yeah. Um, what do you know about twins in terms of their health outcomes as Ooh. a... Well, I know that their health outcomes are often, I think, lower than singletons. Mm-hmm. So they have higher, like, tons of stuff. Like, so higher instance of diabetes, higher instance of heart disease, higher instances of... Basically, almost everything you get from being premature, you you're, tend you're to get. You're spot on. Right? You're so spot the question on. is, is it because they're twins or is it because twins tend to be premature? And it's probably just that ten, twins... So what I want... I, I would like to do is compare uh, twin births mm-hmm. to um, age-matched uh, premature births and compare their outcomes. That's pretty interesting because that's what my study did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, copycat. Yeah. <laughs> so basically... I literally... That was just... Oh, that's really great. Yeah. That's really good. So yeah. at least I, I know I'm answering a clinically relevant question Very much from so. my research. Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically, as you said, twins tend to suffer in the first... At least the first few years of life, a lot of physical... Um, uh, well, impairments when compared to your average singleton. Mm-hmm. And what also happens is the first couple of years of schooling as well, they tend to be a bit further behind. Yep. And so this was, as you were saying, investigating why that you see is. the first couple of years, do they tend to catch up? They do. That's The, the whole idea is they, they do age? tend to catch up a bit later on. Look, it's, it's all fuzzy. When you start talking about like effects of, you know... Um, in, in in utero, like delay, I mean, premature birth and all this kind of stuff. And you start talking about 12, 13, 15 years yeah, of life. Right. It's get, it gets rubbery. Even from me having dealt with some of this stuff yeah. and coming up with the... It's funny. Remember, years here. ago, I used to work with a, uh, an older surgeon. And when you would talk to him or have meetings and you'd discuss a patient that was uh, maybe developmentally delayed. And one day, I think someone said, something about a patient being developmentally delayed and he said i've had enough of this he said you say that as though there's a chance they might catch up yeah right <laughs> he's like let's just say that they're they're slow or they're whatever he says it's not a race they're nowhere near the finish line right <laughs> i was like <laughs> this oh. guy's pretty on pc god he was he was he was a he's a much older guy he's yeah. german and he was very much like let's just call a shovel a spade or yeah. spade a shoveler call well, it if you this, want yeah okay well uh, the research I've got here is not so on PC. It basically is just saying that, yes, because twins tend to get born premature, mm-hmm. they tend to get born also at low birth weight. 
as you could imagine, they're, sh- they're sharing space. Yeah, it's it's you got limited resources, and they're essentially we call that them, a right? packing issue. Yeah, exactly right, right. And so, essentially, because of those two factors, twins tend to get just a, a little bit of a raw deal in the first. Not 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 always, but yeah. ag- on aggregate, they tend to do a little bit worse. Yeah, so at school in the first few years as and well. I would think that compared to straight up premature singletons they would again tend to do slightly worse because of that packing issue and they should have a lower birth weight for That's gestational right. age. That's uh, my guess. Correct. So what, what the paper's basically showing is that th- there's no additional effect of being a twin. Mm-hmm. It's basically all going down to the birth weight and the right. um, premature birth issues. So, so basically what was happening was in New South Wales, there's, there was recommendations when a woman's giving birth while yeah. a woman is pregnant to 36, 37 weeks. Yeah. You can get a C-section, a planned C-section. I think for a singleton, it's after 37, but for twins, it's after 36. It could even be 35. It might be 36. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that if you've got twins, yeah. you're obviously going to be a lot larger. You're a lot larger. You've got two people in there, right? Mm-hmm. And so you Eating can kind three. of, you can opt out yeah. saying, okay, I'm ready to go. Let's do this <laughs> at 36 <laughs> weeks. But this is basically showing you that if you can keep them cooking for as long as possible, keep those buns in the oven. Keep them cooking; it tends to, to improve their outcomes. Yeah, right. That was essentially the right the scope of the paper. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Oh, that's what I would expect. And yeah, you wouldn't think that the sheer virtue of being a twin should itself cause you any adverse effect. It's not like you're splitting your intelligence or your, uh, you know, between two no, people. No, but it would be about what might happen in utero about sharing resources and stuff right so like i mean whatever the but birth weight that should be borne out of the birth weight yeah right yeah i would assume that that would be the surrogate marker for that that's right did you see many differences in birth weight between the twins so you get that shunting from one twin to the other or like like so that cannibalistic there's also twin to twin transfer Mm -hmm. t to t to t that's what what i mean yeah yeah and what about evil twins versus like good twins oh that's the follow-up paper we've actually got some funding (laughs) for that for next year so excellent Yeah, so evilness in twins as compared to singletons. That's right. <laughs> as a function of birth weight. Yes. <laughs> evilness in twins. Yeah. A research paper, Zeltzer et al. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, I'll put, the, I'll put the link up if anyone's actually interested in that The twin more than mustache. How often I the evil one. All right. So uh, I've got another news just in now. This, mm-hmm. this is actually on um, issues to do with evolution. And interestingly enough, mm-hmm. before you came in hot with the idea that this was going to be about... You had this already. I had this ready to go. Yeah. So let me tell you this one. Prebiotic amino acids bind to and stabilize prebiotic fatty acid membranes. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Tell me something I don't know. (laughs) Um, This basically... This is from Caitlin. What's prebiotic? Caitlin. Yeah. Not probiotic. Prebiotic. Mm. Pre. I was ho- See, these are the answers I was hoping you were, you were going to give. No, but the, sorry. the scope of this paper is looking at abiogenesis. Yeah, right. Do you know what that word means? What's abio? I, I keep challenging you on all these things, but yeah, you keep yeah, coming abiogenesis, through. Abiogenesis. So. I know this. I know abiogenesis. Abiogenesis is. Um, it's yeah. it's the. Oh, what is it? It's basically how life starts. Started. Yeah, that's what I was going right. to say. I was going to say that's exactly what I was thinking it was. Yeah. But I was thinking in the context of a new species. So no, so this is the, it's the very straight first, up first life. Yeah. So yeah. in the primordial soup, so when there was just a big sea full of you know elements and ions kind of floating mm-hmm. around and the primordial by, soup, the primordial. That's what I said. Yep. Primordial soup. Again, <laughs> yeah. we've had a rough day today. 
basically there there's always been a problem in terms of this theory because cells given that they're the building blocks of life there's an issue when you're thinking about very basic cells in a big salty mass a salty soup right yeah. cells tend not to like a lot of salt so uh, a team of scientists basically recreated yeah. the soupy conditions mm-hmm. of what we understand the soupy conditions to be and they, they got, found they that got they all were, the right the concentrations of barley and wheat, corn <laughs> cress, cress. <Yeah. laughs> um, and they they found that was it, was it a chicken stock base or <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't work it out more, yeah it was more of a borscht it was yeah. kind of like a uh, cold soup really there's been a lot of conjecture about what kind of a soup, soup it was <laughs> <laughs> like in terms of you know trying to set up the conditions for life you know there's temperature there's possible lightning yeah but you know, we're talking like a beef stock or more of a consomme is it was it a, was it a bisque was it a gumbo <laughs> was it a gumbo i mean there's so many different soups to work out to run the experiment for all of them i mean there's been a lot of uh, a lot of theorizing a lot of a lot of debate let me get to the science basically the the idea is that there are certain amino acids that bind it binds to the fatty acid membranes within a cell yeah so because of these amino acids they they can stabilize the cell membrane in the face of salt sure so this is kind of like in a very simplistic way that i myself don't fully have my head around but this is because you're a simpleton is kind of a really important discovery because it's it's basically like the starting steps of unlocking the key to this the very beginnings of life the cell that we still yeah the cell which yeah. we still don't quite have mm. full and a full well, this, this, so this comes down to sort of an early, um, uh, the early action of homeostasis, right? Which is trying to regulate uh, the internal conditions of the body to mm-hmm. sustain life. That's right. So if one of the first sort of, uh, what would you call it? If one of the first threats to the survival of an organism, if it's a complex molecule, I think as Dawkins early kind of proposed, um, if it's a highly saline environment, well, then the first thing you want to do is wall yourself off and try and control your inside, right? Mm. And get the, the amount of salt that you're quite happy with. That's right. Um, and so to do that, yeah, I can imagine they would make a lipid bilayer yeah. uh, with a semi-permeable membrane that they could pump salt in and out of to control it would be a uh, for sort of the very first kind of thing that would resemble a you know, functioning cell. Mm. And the other thing too is that this also leads into the idea of proteins, which are could be combinations of amino acids, right? Mm-hmm. Now... Because of these cells that are now stable, they can attract more amino acids, which further bolsters the cell. It's almost like this feedback loop that occurs within the cell. So it's creating more stable cells, longer chains of amino acids, which mm-hmm. then can become proteins. Yeah. And so, yeah, so this process can be instrumental in a lot of these conditions that are required for life. Love it. Yeah. So news just in 2019 about a process that began billions of years ago. Four billion, I think that's the, yeah, that's the, the rough estimate. Yeah. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Very cool. So, should we go to the big cheese? The, the, the big Le event? Grand Fromage. Yeah. So, how, how do you describe what's, what's coming up after the break? How do you describe what this is? After the break, so I was talking to a buddy of mine a couple of days ago, um, a fellow scientist, and uh, we were discussing evolution, and he said, have you seen this video on YouTube where these guys, including a mathematician, break down the probability um, not, so much, so not the probability, but rather they make an estimate of the rate of change that cells would have to go through to create the, um, the structural changes that we see with life on Earth. Hmm. So there's a sort of a, a roundtable discussion where a couple guys sit down and talk about uh, what are the odds that 
in the what we'll call it half a billion years old four billion years that we've known about life that we can get to the complex system of organisms we have today right. based on the rate of change of mutations and whatnot so it's almost like a we're, we're putting creationism back on the table is that what you're trying to say like yeah. it's all too complex for it to have happened the, naturally. the, the thesis is that yeah it's all too complex and that they just could not have happened. It's a, a sound argument, but there just was, hasn't been enough time. Well, we will be seeing this defensive creationism yep. after the break. Mm -hmm. You are back with Jeremy's Iron. It's a, a show about science and a variety of other things, uh, including today, evolution. Before the break, we just heard uh, Justin give us an introduction as to what this is about. But essentially, we're going to be we're defending creationism. Well, we'll be discussing a few guys that are defending creationism. Sure, but in the process, assessing their yeah their argument. Yeah. So, so if I got this right, maybe maybe I can. See if I can paraphrase what, the, what yeah, these guys are talking do. about yeah. for my own understanding. The changes that we are expected in the course of evolution yeah. are done through this process of survival, right? So incrementally, these random mutations mm -hmm. incur some kind of survival, either benefit or detriment. Mm -hmm. And if it incurs a survival benefit, mm -hmm. those genes will proliferate. And if it incurs a survival detriment, which as it turns out, most, most of them do, yeah. um, then that mutation will not proliferate, right? Exactly. And then these mutations just keep going, keep going, and all of a sudden yeah. we split off into different animal groups, we split off into whatever, mm -hmm. and we're now four billion years down the track doing a fucking podcast using computer equipment that I've... And eating Oreos. And, and eating an Oreo biscuit. And chamomile tea. And a chamomile tea. <laughs> yeah, so that's the concept, mm -hmm. but you're telling me that there hasn't been enough time in the well, four billion years That's what that they're saying. Okay. So the interview, so the whole thing was um, hosted by the Hoover Institute... So it was on their YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Now, when Pierre, my friend, told me about this uh, about this interview thing, I was pretty excited because and he didn't tell me anything about it other than these smart guys sit around and discuss kind of the improbability of the timeline for evolution yep. to get to where we've gotten. Mm -hmm. And he didn't mention creationism. He didn't mention anything else. I don't know if he picked up on it. I don't think he did the background research into who these guys were and sort of the channel and things like that. But he was suitably impressive. I don't think he was convinced by it, but he thought it was like you know kind of an interesting idea to play with. Um, so the Hoover Institute is the one that hosted the video, mm -hmm. Hoover Institution, and from what I can tell, they're sort of like a right-wing think tank. Um, okay, right. I, I shouldn't be biasing my thoughts about them, but I already am. Yeah. Anyway. So that's just how it is. Right. I don't know, but I would have I would have more bias if you said it was a left wing think tank. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, right, Dave Rubin. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, and then the the guy that's actually kind of moderating the session 
is a guy called I think it's um, Peter Robert Peter Robinson. So Peter Robinson, um, very smart guy, very eloquent. Um, I think he does a great job um, hosting or moderating the session, don't you think? Um, in terms well, of I, I only listened to it, so uh, I, I downloaded it. Well, you heard audio. him, though. I didn't know who was who, okay. so it was difficult yeah, right. for me. They were kind of interjecting. Right. So. so Peter Robinson, from what I've read, is a um, he was actually a former speechwriter going all the way back to the Reagan administration. Wow, okay. So Reagan, or Republican. And he, in fact, wrote the famous speech that Reagan gave to Gorbachev to tear down this wall. What? Okay, wow. So this dude so is a guy. This guy is like... He's, a, he's, he's a, not a slouch. No, and he's like... He's definitely got like a golden tongue, right? Okay. He's a silver fox with a golden tongue. <laughs> that was his nickname. Around you could boil him down and like, you know, yeah. get a decent amount of coin for the metals in his body. <laughs> <laughs> you could. Like a cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> He's got some cadmium in his heart and some iridium in his kidneys. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, so no, he's pretty good. Like I, I thought he was a really good moderator. And then there's three guys on this panel or whatever it is, this kind of this, this forum. So the first one is a guy called uh, Stephen Meyer. Now, Stephen Meyer is a very, um, very vocal creationist or rather intelligent design theorist. Okay. Um, I think he's got a degree from... Um, I think it might be Oxford. I mean, these are all really educated guys, right? Yep. Um, and he's written several books, uh, kind of sort of refuting Darwin. And other, he's very pro-intelligent design. Um, then the other guy is a guy called David Berlinski. And he's been kicking around for decades as well. He's a mathematician and philosopher. And he's been living in Paris for the last like 20 or 30 years. And if you go through YouTube, he's got their videos, interviews, debates with this guy going back literally 20, 30 years, right? So he's been sort of a long player in this game. But they're all, it sounds like they're all conservative. They're all conservative. So Leaning. And they're all Berlinski kind of... defines himself as a secular Jew. Okay. That's not particularly outrageous. Nope. Most... Which means that you'd think that he would be someone who is either a foot in both camps or if anything, probably slightly pro-atheist leaning in his sort of, you know, sort of pro-science. Um, I don't know. That's, it's, it's kind of saying you're a secular Jew. I think kind of it's very you could go either way with that. You I can think. go anyway. Yeah, it's the great trick of the secular Jew. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that could get some trouble. <laughs> oh look, people need to listen to the podcast for it to get some trouble. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, so he was in. A, so he's sitting there in like a uh, a cut off denim vest. Uh, he looks like he's straight up like uh, the Outsiders or something. This guy looks like he's a thug. And he's like 75 years old. Right. Uh, he's got a cane. Um, he's a very sketchy looking dude, but he speaks very well. He's a very, very smooth talker. And the last guy is David Galertner, who is a mathematician, I believe. Um, or mathematician, computer scientist. Okay. Super smart guy. Yeah. And you didn't see the video. This is really interesting. So okay. when you watch the video... Um, he, I noticed he's got something wrong with his right hand, and he's got like a glove on his hand of some sort, and it looked like some sort of a rehab glove, right? The kind of glove you give someone who had a stroke or whatever. And I was like, oh, cool. So he's probably had a stroke. Um, so when I was doing a bit of research about the background for each of these guys, um, they're all fairly like you know prolific guys in their own way. This guy's got a particularly interesting story in that. Um, so he is. He sounds like a villain. He's a mathematician he's with a, a mathematician. glove on one well, hand. Like, of, yeah, it's not good, right? So firstly, so he's Jewish, but he's a religious Jew, um, as opposed to David Berlinski, who's Meshuggah a secular Jew. Yes. Uh, and he, do you know why he's got this funny glove on his hand? It's a golfing thing. No, <laughs> no, man. 
does the name um, uh, the Unabomber mean anything to you? Oh shit! So he was one. He, of- he was one of the guys that received the mail when the mail bombs back in the early nineties, the mid nineties, from, from um, Ted Kaczynski. God. So he lost the use of one of his eyes and one of his hands. That's that, it's definitely an interesting so background story for a few of these guys. I don't like, know what that means. No, it doesn't mean anything, really. No, but but, um, but pretty like that's there yeah. were mainly those guys. So he's like a real like souvenir from that time. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's kind that's of interesting way of putting it. Yeah, but like it's it's a relic of the nineties, right? Fuck. So he's been kicking on ever since. He's still a fairly prolific, you know, computer scientist. Super smart guy. I think he's at Yale. So so was he the driving force behind the idea that there's not enough time? Like, did he? Is, is he? Um, who, who was trying to figure out that they've all mathematically written, that's not all three time. of these guys have written books in the last couple of years Berlinski um, who's the mathematician has written many books over the last 20 years challenging Darwin um, so I think some of the books we have here are um, still Stephen Meyer wrote The Deniable Darwin uh, I think that Darwin's Doubt and Giving Up Darwin were written by I think by Berlinski um and then Gelertner, I don't have the name of his book, but he also wrote a book quite recently. Right. Uh, and they're all very, um, all their books were sort of inspired by each other. They've written so many. They're all sort of on, in the same camp and they've known each other for several years. Right. Um, but the crux comes down. They're all very, um, most of them were quite flattering of, of Darwin and yeah. his theory. So yeah. It's a very beautiful theory. It's an elegant theory. It's great. Unfortunately, they said it's just a theory. And if he knew then what we know now about biology, about mutation rate about uh, the timelines for some of these things. Some of the things we know about the genome, he didn't know about the genome at the time, right? So he didn't really have an idea of the structure of the genome mm. and how complicated it was. Um, they said it just doesn't really add up mm. and that you can't get from there to here in the four billion years, especially if you consider things like the Cambrian explosion. Did you catch that part? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of Stephen Meyer, who's the, um, the proper intelligent design like proponent He's big on the Cambrian explosion as being sort of like the, the smoking gun yeah. in the whole situation. And the Cambrian explosion is essentially 500 million years ago. If you go down through the Earth's crust and we go down through all of our kind of, you know, geographic layers. Um, it goes from nothing to a whole bunch a of whole shit. A whole bunch of stuff. So, so it's like we have single-celled organisms for like literally from 4 billion years ago until... Two billion years ago, or whatever, or or sorry, until five hundred million years ago, and then suddenly in this in this layer, it's just a huge explosion of essentially the building blocks of all species that we have now. So some version of everything that we have in the world but now see, that, is kind of there. I mean, surely there's nothing that strange about that if you consider the idea of mutations and maybe just just at the, the cusp of what became the Cambrian explosion, mm. there was just some mutation that happened that was so successful. Okay, it, it might have been so unlikely that this mutation happened, but it happened. And mm. that became such a stable configuration, whatever it was, yeah. that it allowed, it multiplied and it allowed this explosion to happen, right? So I, I, I personally don't see a problem. Sort of like the, uh, the invention of fire. <clears throat> yeah, right? that's right. So yeah. Another, so we have like the singularity of life and then some, by some amazing stroke of luck another singularity of complexity yeah. right so like some mutation that promotes complex life and then you just have everything spins yeah. off right? it, it, given its success it just replicates yeah, so and... I think that's sort of the contemporary view of like, we don't have it kind of has to be we right? don't I mean, have an answer outside of creationism it yeah. kind of has to be yeah. the answer right yeah so <clears throat> Stephen Meyer and these other guys think that if you take the Cambrian explosion and then you take um, 
the incredible complexity of the genome, as well as the time required to create a genome and, and a variety of life that we see that's so complex, they said it's literally impossible, just based on the numbers, for that to happen. And if you remove the idea of chance being the kind of the causative agent in all this, he said then you must be looking at some sort of degree of design. Because it really, there's two options that we can think of, chance or design. Now, from what I understood, they weren't talking about big G God design. They left it out and they were pretty careful to not be too sort of um, theistic about the whole thing. Um, so what do they mean when they say design? Well, what do they so mean by that? David Berlinski, who's the middle guy, he's the mathematician. He sits on the fence. He never said he's pro-intelligent design. He just said that he is sort of anti-Darwinism. Right. He's just saying there's enough holes in, in Darwinism that I'm not saying it's a God. I'm not saying it's design. But that's just something we don't know yet. Something we don't know. But that's and okay. It tends, and he, but he tends to say it, it looks to me more like design. Okay. Stephen Meyer said it's absolutely design. And it's funny because uh, they're also on the same page. See, the more I watched it, initially I was like, this is great. These guys are, they love Darwin. But they've just realized there's just more to the story. There's always more to the story, right? I can totally acknowledge. Like, I've certainly had, I wouldn't say my doubts, but my confusion about um, my lizard brain can't quite totally comprehend the timeline involved, yeah. right? It's very difficult to sort of process 4 billion years. And to say um, that's not enough time. I guess you've got such a big amount of time and such a slow process. Yeah. It's a common problem in mathematics when you have these like yeah, the scale huge of denominator, huge yeah. numerator. Yeah. Is it a big number or is it a small number? You don't know, right? Mm. Yeah, totally, right? So, and to think, I mean, I totally agree with these guys on in one sense, which is we think about the complexity and all the different point mutations that have to happen, most of which are useless, even more of which are deadly. To get the ones that are actually helpful, they initially have to just be non-dangerous, non-lethal. And then, on top, then after that, hopefully, maybe some of them are actually helpful as well. And the process to filter all those out, for them to actually rise and sort of accumulate to complexity that's useful mm. and different as well mm. seems to be mind-boggling and you could almost convince yourself just by thinking of the numbers to be like no that can't be possible mm. it just can't be possible mm. and then suddenly you find yourself in the creationist camp without even realizing it you're like oh well i guess i'm going to church tomorrow <laughs> i guess that's it sign me up <laughs> yeah i mean you almost could right like but that, but that there's a mistake in logic with that like just because we don't have all the answers to tell us each step yeah. of the way, surely you think there's there's enough of a foundation of understanding for how this works. Yeah. And you, you, you can you can derive it from different species and you can look at their similarities. Well, and you know, that, okay, we, we know that a million, yeah. sorry, uh, yeah, one, approximately one, 1.5 million years ago, we separated from what now became the bonobos and chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. You go back another 3 million years and there's a great ape that, that branch, like yeah. we know all this stuff. Yeah. Like, there's so much evidence to suggest that it is this random process. Yeah. The fact that we don't have all the keys to all the little tiny like questions yeah. along the way. And bear in mind that the, the theistic approach, which is the creationist approach, doesn't actually give that many more answers, right? Because the only way in my mind... It doesn't mind, give any answers. Well, okay. Look, no, I, I, you know where I'm coming from. but And where I'm coming from as yeah. well, right? But I'm trying to be charitable sure. in terms of thinking... Well, if I was going to think, how would a creationist approach to this all work? Well, you think, well, that it would everything would just be created by a perfect God and just laid out, right? And then it would just, it would just move. Um, but why you would have to have this a creator, so like, like a kid in a sandbox, sort of creating as he goes 
and changing things and getting rid of things. So you, if things are going extinct and things are working and things aren't working. So why would we see a fossil record that shows kind of contemporaneous iteration? Yeah. It seems very ungodlike to me, right? Um, and to make very subtle changes and have things not quite work out and have the degree of disease we have or, or misgivings and failure, you kind of think it doesn't really, I don't know if it's really supports the idea of, of an intelligent design in the first place, mm. right? Mm. It sounds like actually unintelligent design. It just sounds like a regular person who's iterating his way through things. Yeah. Right. Which isn't like really intelligent design in and of itself. That's again, tends to look, suddenly it starts to again, look more like dumb luck. Mm. Um, but it's funny. So Stephen Meyer, who's the most clearly the most vocally religious of the three of them, um, what he says, what they all actually tend to say really is that, um, Darwin can explain the small changes, uh, different size wings, different size beaks. I mean, like literally the things that he described in his book. Um, but they don't tend to give much more than that. And they say the big changes, the interspecies differences we see have to be the cause of something bigger, something bigger and swifter. Well, okay. That. Well, no, this, this is where, I mean, species progress and evolution, I guess, as we mm. understand it, changes in a species occur due to two different through two different means, right? Mm -hmm. You have this biological evolution factor, right? Yeah. But I don't think they did, but perhaps do they consider the idea of the sexual selection being a process by which species can diverge quickly? Because, I mean... I don't know how big a role sexual selection has in speciation. I don't see why it shouldn't. I don't, I, in fact, I don't even, personally, I don't even see the distinction between those well, that, two processes. That's, well, no, that's what I'm saying. I don't see it as being a distinct entity. Well, because they, they happen in concert. There, there's, a, really. there's a book that I'm going to tie in here yeah. um, by a guy called Jeffrey Miller, who, have you heard the name? Jeffrey Miller? He's been on, I think he's been on Sam Harris's podcast. Two L's or three? <laughs> two L's, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, don't know. <laughs> uh, he basically, he, he has a book called The Mating Mind, and this is from probably. You love this stuff. I do. I, although this is a this is a book that I've had next to my bedside for like nine months, and I haven't, I've barely opened it because even though I, I really want to read it, it's still so dry. I'm just like I can't, I can't do it. Such big words. I've, I've, I've rifled through it, and I've got the general gist. So yeah, here's the general gist. Um, basically, we we know that things like, for example, in the peacock, we've talked about the peacocks here yeah. before, like the peacock's tail, right, mm -hmm. is something that confers no survival benefit to the males. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. It's a colorful tail that makes it more observable to predators or yeah. whatever, right? It only exists in terms of its sexual, you know, um, attraction that it gives yeah, to of females. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea of a run, uh, uh, I think it's Fisher. We've talked about our mate um, yeah. Ronald Fisher before. Yeah. But the idea that one peacock can have a little bit of a, a little bit of a stumpy tail start starting to grow or whatever, stump, yeah. like a feathery tail. Yeah. And then for whatever reason, a bunch of, or even a single female finds that attractive. They mate successfully. Yeah. Maybe a few females find that whatever different and they're like, oh, this guy with a weird lump on his you know, backside looks pretty cool. Yeah. Then what happens is their, their progeny will have not only the traits for a little bit of a stump. But the traits for liking it. A traits for liking it, yeah. and that is the crucial element, right? So, yeah. because the progeny have the traits yeah, for liking sure. it, okay. and then all of a sudden, the larger tails you get, okay, a bit of a random variation, but because yeah. of this sexual selection and pressure, mm -hmm. the tails can grow. It compounds it, but it goes really quickly. The whole idea yeah. of sexual selection is that 
it can outpace just biological evolution, survival-based evolution. Yeah. It can outstrip that by an incredible amount. That's a really good point. And, and Jeffrey Miller's argument about humans... Two L's. Jeffrey Miller with two L's, mm-hmm. his argument about humans is that the our intelligence often touted as something as the um, the smoking gun for evolution, right? Like how, how is it possible that we became this intelligent and, you know, the, the complexity of the human brain, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's essentially our peacock's tail, right? So we use our brain to impress mates and therefore have progeny that want to see impressive brains, right? Mm-hmm. And those become the successful reproducing traits, right? So to me, again, without having a biological background or one in evolutionary yeah. biology in particular, I see that and I kind of go... Yes, that'll compound the timeline. There's an answer here in my brain that they're not even dealing with at all. Yeah. Oh, dude, there are tons of answers that they aren't dealing with. Like when you... By the end, I was really frustrated with the conversation, I got to say. Yeah. Um, there was just tons of things. They were, they were cherry picking things they liked and didn't like. Uh, as as we do, as we, and look as we do too. Like one of the things that Stephen Meyer was saying was, um, something about how. You know the percentage of the genome that's useful for structure is actually quite small, like five or ten percent of the genome is is useful, and the rest is junk. Right. So tons of the code is just useless gibberish that we've inherited and that has been, been turned kind of mutation off for mutations or just old stuff from previous iterations of what we were or other things we could have become which just aren't useful and they're arranged haphazardly and we don't actually turn on those codes. Can I make a really nerdy reference for that? Yeah. Okay, slide aside. You know Microsoft Excel? Of course I do. There are functions in Excel, Mm -hmm. statistical functions, right? But Mm -hmm. as Excel got new versions or whatever, they had to keep the old functions that they improved upon Yeah. because people using spreadsheets, they might have had these functions in there. They didn't want to invalidate them. So whenever you type in something like um, like standard deviation, stdev is like the yep. function. There's a whole host of different ones that are the same thing, but just from different versions. So it's oh, kind of yeah. like this cavalcade. Of, it's like that, right? I was gonna right? say. I was gonna say it's like. Uh, <laughs> a, I was gonna say it's like lorem ipsum for fonts. Just, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, but yours is much better. Yeah. Well, mine's maybe even more niche. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, my so, stats students are gonna be like, I'm listening to this podcast. <laughs> this is gonna help me on the fucking exam. <laughs> so you made this point that like. That's one of the reasons why, even with all the mutations, they only even matter in that five to ten percent of the genome. And it's like the odds of it of having a mutation in the right area over the time. It's, it's just that the numbers just don't add up. So initially, part of his argument was how small the functional tail of the genome is. It's useful. And then he mentioned at some point later on in the in the in the conversation how um, we're only now appreciating. Um, how much of the junk stuff is actually useful. Right. And he's like, you know, this is something we didn't know back then. And, you know, we're actually learning that a lot of the junk is maybe not as junky as we thought it was. And I thought, doesn't that go right against what you said before about only a small amount of it being useful and the small amount being useful, yeah. the whole reason why you can make your argument. Mm. And then you start saying that actually, no, a lot more of it's actually useful. I'm like, well, that invalidates that part of your earlier argument, you know? So there's a lot of, I'm like, this guy's no question smarter than I am. He's a very super smart guy. But they're not. I, I'm not really gonna. He, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's funny when you hear smart people talking eloquently about a subject they don't have topical expertise in. Do you know what I mean? Like, my instinct is to trust these guys, right? But this is a delicate topic that might that has you know a whole bunch of 
you know, research required behind it. That oh yeah, for sure. We certainly don't have, but but it seems like they might not have either. So I don't know. I'm unconvinced. So Stephen Meyer, by the way, is the director of the Center of Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute and vice president and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. Um, yeah. Okay. So they're big names and whatever. Oh yeah, but, yeah, they're big names. So he's got a. As much as I like to rag on universities, he's like got a bachelor a of physics in, and earth science. From the Christian Whitworth College. Earth science? Yeah. Earth science? Yeah, I know, right? Um, <laughs> I don't even know what that is, actually. What's earth science? I mean, he got a PhD from Cambridge. Yeah, so... But again, there's PhDs and there's PhDs, right? There are neuroscientists that... Uh, and, uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? So and there are neuroscientists. Anyway, I don't really know what, it, what, what a degree in... It's a bachelor's, so it's a bachelor's. Physics and earth science in 81 from Christian Whitworth College. I mean... You, Especially back in 81, I kind of wondered the, what kind of science they were teaching at the Christian Whitworth College as well, right? No, but it's true. Like, what what were they potentially uh, teaching as earth science? Well, there's a fair chance they were teaching things that were creationist values. I think that wouldn't be a long bow, right? So, mm-hmm. so yes, he's a very educated man, but you also wonder sort of what stream of education he was educated in to achieve these degrees. Mm. Um, so he comes from a fairly sort of potentially bottlenecked um, educational institution. Uh, so that was all very interesting. Now, I did some background watching of videos of these guys, and there's a really good video with uh, David Berlinski, who's a mathematician. So he's been fighting this for like decades. He's been writing books about Darwin, mm-hmm. like the same way that Dawkins keeps on rewriting the same book about Darwin, like pro Darwin. He's what written a version of the same book like nine times. Mm-hmm. Berlinski's written the ver- same version of the book like five times, which is Darwin's dumb. And Darwin doesn't know what he's talking about. And also, he hates atheists. So he thinks that atheism is a, an affront to science, to good science. Right, okay. It doesn't make any sense. So you see him. So he debated Hitchens about 10 years ago when uh, old Chris Hitchens was on his deathbed. So Chris Hitchens is up there, bald, coughing away. And um, I wouldn't say he destroyed him. But uh, as Hitch is known to do with his kind of his, uh, his adversaries, yep. yeah. But this guy just wasn't talking sensibly at all. Hmm. It was it was a silly debate in the first place. It was about his. Do you remember the Hitchens book, um, God, God is, is not, not great. great. Yeah. How religion poisons everything. Yep. The debate was called how atheism poisons everything. What? Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, that, that was the tagline, right? So that was their, their debating. And so obviously this other, Berlinski took up the affirmative and Hitchens took okay. up the, you know. The negative. Yeah. Interesting. All right. And it, it was not a very good debate. But uh, if you go back and watch some of this guy's stuff, he's not thinking logically at all. And he's a philosopher, but he's not a biologist. Well, that's right. And, and yeah, that's why I, I've yeah. got so, a bit of a... I think it, but well, it's interesting discussion, absolutely. Totally interesting discussion, and it does sort of it teases out. There's something kind of you know very human mm. about not being able to understand the scope of these things and the scale. Well, here's here's something interesting. Another piece of research. I was just I just have a quick Google search while you were talking um, uh, about if sexual selection can lead to speciation. In mm-hmm. fact, what I did was in Google I wrote can sexual selection. And it auto like the the first response was lead to speciation. Yeah. So this and, and of course, the minute I said I don't get it, I instantly realized of course it does. As well. Well, okay. What's this paper? This paper is oh, this is from a long time ago. I'm keen to see if this was well um, from 2001. So it was cited by a lot. Well, better than the Cambrian. Yeah. Well, it's certainly <laughs> written after the Cambrian. Um, Essentially, okay, this is called sexual selection and speciation. Uh-huh. Uh, abstract. The power of sexual selection to drive changes in mate recognition traits gives it the potential 
to be a potent force in speciation. Much of the evidence to support this possibility comes from comparative studies that examine differences in the number of species between clades that apparently differ in the intensity of sexual selection. Okay, so they're basically arguing here that more detailed studies are needed, examining extinction rates and other sources of variation in species richness. Um, typically, investigations of extant natural populations have been too indirect to, convince, to convincingly conclude speciation by sexual selection. So they're basically saying, well, at least in 2001, there appeared to be no super-duper evidence in support of speciation by sexual selection. But my, my dumb brain says, why the fuck not? How could it not? I'm sure it has. Well, I, look, I, I can see why it could. Hmm. But let's do some more research on that one. Let's put a pin in that. Yeah. Well, we'll put a pin on that. Maybe we can come back to that maybe in the next episode to yeah. see if we can find a bit more. Because I, I didn't expect that to be the... Um, yeah, my gut... bubble up about that. My gut was no, but then when I think about it, I can... Definitely think of a way that it could, or or again, at least compound and speed up the, uh, the process of a speciation. Mm. Well, good. That's given us homework to do. Mm-hmm. That can be on our next episode. In fact, you'd have to listen in to the next episode to uh, find out if we do get any more answers to that question. Yeah, it's, it's a cliffhanger. Real, a, real, <laughs> a real cliffhanger. One of the greats. Um, so what did you think of the of the interview by the end? Or So what was your, your take across the, the I found I found hour? it stoking of like it, it was it was good to listen to mm-hmm. it made me because you didn't really do the background i was i kept on like nipping off in the middle watching other videos or reading about these oh, guys okay. and so that kind of colored how i listened I, to i it. didn't even know who was speaking half the time yeah. so I, I really got no impression of what was going on i was just sort of so did it sound reasonable to you or did it sound twinged by bias it, well it didn't sound biased necessarily but they sound very definitely very hazy on what alternative they were suggesting Calling yeah. it creationism, they really didn't explain that very well. What that meant, they stepped back from saying it was religious. I remember at some point they were saying, "This is not, you know, this doesn't mean it's a God creation story kind of thing. It's not like the creation story well, is." They're, they're, they're correct, keeping but, their cards close to their chest. I don't get right. it. Then what does it mean? I what don't is- know. And that's why the David uh, Galerner, the guy that was the Unabomber victim yeah. with the, with the hand glove, um, I suppose the foot glove. <laughs> What you call a sock? <laughs> he um, he was saying about the work of Stephen Meyer. He said it's very clear. I don't know if you remember this part. Remember. He said um, I want to be very clear here that one of the great things about Stephen's work is that this isn't a top-down theory. He didn't start with the idea of God and work down towards intelligent design and then sort of um, project that onto the data. He said he started from the data, from the numbers, and worked up. So this is this is a bottom-up hypothesis. Well, that's kind of how people get to religion anyway. Right, everyone's trying to figure out what's going on, and with limited, well, data. Initially, and- I think we can say that at the dawn of various religions, there was a bottom-up. It was a version of science, which is this is the data. How to explain this? Oh, it's easy. There's one thing that fixes. Fix- yeah, one thing that fixes <laughs> a, everything. A unified. Yeah. They came up with their unified theory of everything yeah. a long time ago. <laughs> We're still looking for that, right? Um, do you think whenever people talk about trying to find like you know the unified theory, um, people who are religious are like. Yeah, guys, we found Dude, it already. We got, we got like, this. It's like, just embarrassing. Yeah. Just like, keep, yeah, keep going. <laughs> this is so easy. Yeah. yeah, they're like, yeah, no, you're you're on the right track. Like, there there is a unified theory. Yeah, you're just nowhere near it. Um, but I think now, for most people, you inherit the answer and then you project it onto the data, right? Yeah, and you, and that you, applies and, in a and lot you of interpret social it. realms as well. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, we we all do it. It's, it's a heuristic for everything, right? Um. But he was... You very, implant your schema. 
very the, they yeah. were very clear in this in this kind of conversation that this was not about starting with god and working their way down towards kind of how it all works they're like no 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 this is evidence for the, god this, like, this you is starting from the data he's like you started the data and you crunch the numbers and there's nothing else left but then to assume that there is going to be something that's a designer um the alternatives just don't make sense and they're yeah. like we would be happy to take darwin at face value if it made any sense unfortunately it just doesn't and so you're left looking for the other kind of you know explanation and there has to be some sort of a design um, so I thought that was interesting. They really tried to stray away from the idea of these kind of these theistic biases. But I think, okay, I think there's a question. But, but to me, it came across fairly transparent that it's more than See, that. See, their definition of, well, their, their sort of clouded definition of creationism almost falls on my side of the, the equation because I think when people say, the distinction really should be, do you think that humans are special or not? Yeah. Meaning that, do you think that this place was designed for us by whatever? Maybe it's a guy with a beard. Maybe it's something else. Do you think that we are special beyond our just general improved mental faculties over other animals or whatever, right? You mean special the way your mom says you're special. That's right. But imagine my mom said that... Or the way your mom says I'm special. Yeah, well, that's right. (laughs) More than my mom says you're special. (laughs) I'm pretty sure the doctors say you're special as well. Yeah. Um... But yeah, so it's it's to me the distinction is not is there things we don't know about how we came here because yeah. I think everyone's answer is yes. My answer is yes, right? Mm. It's not. It, the, the question should be: Do you think? Do you believe in in human exceptionality? To me, that just differentiates yeah. religious people from non-religious people. That's a clearer question for me, even though it's a bit more convoluted. But it's a it's good a, screening it, question. Yeah, because yeah. if you think that humans are exceptional. And I don't mean that in a just general sense. I mean that in a specific sense. We are an ex- we're exceptional when compared to other animals and other species and whatever, and fungi. Then I think you have a religious bent that I, I can definitely disagree with wholeheartedly. And I wonder if these guys would answer that question that way. Yeah, that was probably giving up the gun a little bit if they were to be asked that question. And I think the reason that wasn't asked is because there was a sort of a very like-minded... Um, YouTube channel, it's the Hoover Institution. And in fact, when you go back through the old videos of the Hoover Institution, there's a lot of similar videos. So this wasn't like a, hey, these are some great books. Let's get these guys together. This is, seems to be a very interesting topic that's kind of, you know, yeah. that these guys are flirting with. Um, this was like, there seems to be an agenda here. And in fact, when you look back at David Berlinski, who's the, um, the mathematician in the group, who's a fairly interesting figure when you watch him, most of the videos that are put forward on YouTube, even the historical ones, are all being um, promoted by the Hoover Institution. Okay. So, so like, just, yeah. it, I'd say 60 to 70% of the videos that his name's attached to are now Hoover Institution videos. So these guys are really pushing his agenda, which is this um, anti-Darwinism mm-hmm. uh, kind of, uh, you know, theory. One of the things, for example, that he, he said in some of these old videos when he was challenging uh, Darwinists in a couple of these uh, old debates was he'd say to them, where's your theory? And they'd say, well, the theory is, you know, Darwin's theory of evolution, which is, you know, iterative change and, you know, yada, yada. And he says uh, things like, yeah, but what's the theory? Like, what's a theory that a mathematician or a physicist or an engineer could apply and build something with that's reproducible and reliable? He said, that's not a theory. He says, unless you're telling me the theory is just change. So, but give me a theory that's not just change. And they're like, well, no, that's, 
That is the theory. He's like, well, that's not a theory. That's just change. So give me the actual, give me the numbers. Give me the theory. Give me the equation. I don't get what he's asking. Exactly. And they're like, I don't know what you, what you, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's not a theory. There's really nothing to it. You're just saying change. And uh, when you watch those videos, you're the like, more you, the more you're talking about this, the more I'm think, thinking these guys are full shit. Oh, exactly. So the more I watched, the more I was like, these guys are uh, fancy they, pants. They slow shit. They slow played it and kept their cards close to their chest and kind of were very. They vacillated a little bit. They sort of um, yeah. gave kudos to Darwin and all this kind of this stuff. Guy, the yeah. guy with the hand with the Unabomber, like yeah. he peaked when he got blown up by the by the Unabomber. That was his. That was yeah. yeah. But um, but so I thought that was interesting to watch some of these old videos. Really, kind of give these away some of what they really think yeah. about these issues, and they're not nearly as diplomatic as they as they come across. And if, and they don't think nearly as clearly as they seem to in this video as well. Nonetheless, it's provided us with uh, a whole episode yeah, it was of good. discussion, I was like, oh, and it's certainly something for us to look look into in the future too. I'm going to be kind of delving into this a little bit harder as well. But you know, because the moral of this, uh, the reason for this video is that sometimes it's really important to challenge some of these ideas that we have. And I think it is important to challenge Darwinism. I don't think there's anything, nothing sacred about it that can't be questioned. Mm. Um, and I thought what they were doing in principle was asking a really good question. I was really excited by applying sort of mathematical or statistical principles to something which is fundamentally mathematical and statistical. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, it is a game of probability. So there's no reason why you couldn't apply those numbers to it. Unfortunately, there might be too many variables to play to do it succinctly, right? Yeah. Um, especially when we consider things like possible sexual selection or changing environments or whatever else. I mean, there's things we just can't really control mm. for now. But um, good try, though. Fun. Yeah. Man, it was a good show. It was a good, mm. good, uh, good content. It set me off on like a real like uh, rabbit hole of <laughs> atheist videos and oh, yeah. anti how much, how much pro anti. Did you watch? Oh man. Oh, Bill Nye was the big one. All right. Dude, he's good. He's the new man. That's been Jeremy's Iron. If you dig what you're, what you're hearing, it's mm-hmm. jeremysiron.com. Find us on Facebook or you can email us jeremysironpodcast at gmail.com if you want to give us some correspondence. We can give you a shout out, deal with a topic of your own interest. That's we what we do. Have what a, we, do. Uh, we also have a man with a sandwich sign placard <laughs> in the CBD. Oh. <laughs> What? I'm trying to think of other forms of media, other things that we, oh, right. other yeah, ways yeah. we update our people. And one is just a man with a sandwich sign. What would you do if, if you were posed the question? <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine a podcast? With two Justins. Each doing... <laughs> voices. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>